0: It is a privilege to be back tonight to continue our study of J.C. Ryle's A Call to Prayer, picking up where we left off from our last study. Um, We're going to be in Chapter 9 for the next two weeks, and that's going to be where we conclude this curriculum. This particular part of Ryle's study is focusing on counsel to the saints, or counsel to believers, regarding the benefits and the value of drawing near to the Lord in prayer. And before we get started, as usual, I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer. And um, we're going to read Psalm 116 together. I have a few comments to say about Psalm 116 by way of overview before we read that text and talk about it briefly. But um, let me open us up in prayer. And after I pray, would somebody be willing to read from Psalm 116? Get us started. Alan, take it. All right. Let's pray, and then Alan will take that passage, and we will talk about it a little bit and dive into Ryle. Let's pray. Lord God, by your grace and by your grace alone, we have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result of our faith, we know you, Father. We have been forgiven of our sins. We have been Adopted into your heavenly family. Our sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west, and because Jesus drank the cup of your wrath, we will never know anything but your smile for all of eternity future. What a joy that is to consider, and Father, what motivation that should be to cause us to draw near to you in prayer, to desire to come before your throne of grace, to make our petitions and requests known to you, and Father, to just commune with you for the sake of being with you, Father. Would that, be, would that be the desire of our hearts to study your word and to just spend time with you, to talk to you, Lord, to think about you, to ponder your goodness and faithfulness to us. I pray, Father, that this study and I hope that all the previous studies will continue to make us men and women of prayer that our prayer life would be enriched, that we would be further conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ in our character, and that we would be more effective witnesses as we leave these studies to go out before watching world to proclaim the gospel and to model lifestyles that are above reproach and that point to you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us wisdom tonight to accurately discern your word and to accurately apply the lessons that Ryle is going to draw our attention to And that in doing so, Father, that you would be glorified as we are satisfied in you this evening. We pray all of this to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so Psalm 116, before Alan reads this, I just want to give you all a brief overview of the Psalm 30,000 foot flyover of of what we're going to be reading here from this passage. Um, This particular Psalm, I, I think we can categorize it into three sections You have verses 1 to 5 of Psalm uh, Psalm 116 that describes the psalmist's love for God and how God has answered his prayers for salvation and for preservation in the spiritual life. So we have um, expressions of love to God and expressions of gratitude to God for uh, the psalmist's salvation and for the psalmist being preserved in his faith as a believer. The second section of the psalm that we're going to read in just a few moments is found in verses 6 to 11. In that particular section, I think, um, describes the psalmist's spiritual peace and contentment that he has before God. And he has that contentment. He has that spiritual peace as a result of remembering God's faithfulness to answering his prayers and to um, being there to uphold him and sustain him at various points in his life as a believer. And the third and final uh, characterization of this psalm um, Or category of this psalm is found in verses 12 to 19. And uh, for the listener, as well as for us tonight, I believe that section expresses the psalmist's desire to respond to the love that he has for God and in light of the faithfulness that God has demonstrated to him in his life as a believer. And this should also be our response when we reflect on the love of God for us in Christ and on the faithfulness that God has demonstrated to us in our lives. It's to respond to those realities with a heart of worship and a desire to magnify God in every aspect of our life. So as we prepare to dive into Ryle tonight and um, in doing so after we read this text from Psalm 116, um, my prayer is that this psalm will focus our minds on the counsel that Ryle provides to believers who are reading this portion of this book. Really, um, whether you've been in Christ for just a few weeks, or if you've been in Christ for over 50 years, our comprehension of the love of God for us and God's faithfulness to us should ultimately motivate us to draw near to him in prayer and should motivate us to glorify him and worship him in every aspect of our lives. That is what we find here in Psalm 116. That is what Ryle is going to be pointing us to over the next two weeks as we study this final chapter of his um, A Call to Prayer book. But Alan, go ahead and take us through Psalm 116, um, and then we will dive into Ryle together.
1: I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me; the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord, and righteous our God. Our gracious, great righteous our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars." What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people and the courts of the house of the Lord in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord.
0: Amen. Man, it makes me want to preach on that psalm someday. It's just so rich, isn't it? Um, just the the kindness of God to us. And um, it's that kindness that ultimately, I believe, propels us into prayer, propels us into action in the Christian life. And I think that Ryle has a lot of good thoughts for us to consider uh, to those themes as we work our way through the first half of chapter 9 tonight. I'm going to read um, the first two paragraphs on page 19. And before we have our first time of group discussion, I, I do want us to get down to the third paragraph right under the subheading position. So can I get a volunteer to read that first paragraph right under the heading position on page 19? Michelle, thank you. Um, just As soon as I finish that second paragraph, just go ahead and dive on into the third, and then we'll discuss uh, a question that I have for us. So, uh, the struggle. Ryle writes the following. Let me speak, lastly, to those who do pray. I trust that some who read this know well what prayer is and have the spirit of adoption. To all such, I offer a few words of brotherly counsel and exhortation. The incense offered in the tabernacle was ordered to be made in a particular way. Not every kind of incense would do. Let us remember this and be careful about the matter and manner of our prayers. Brethren who pray, if I know anything of a Christian's heart, you are often sick of your own prayers. You never enter into the apostles' words, When I would do good, evil is present with me so thoroughly as you sometimes do upon your knees. Romans 7.21 you can understand David's words, I hate vain thoughts, Psalm one nineteen one thirteen. You can sympathize with that poor converted Hottentot who was overheard praying, Lord, deliver me from all my enemies and above all from that bad man myself. There are few children of God who do not often find the season of prayer as a season of conflict. The devil has special wrath against us when he sees us on our knees. Yet, I believe that prayers which cost us no trouble should be regarded with great suspicion. I believe we are very poor judges of the goodness of our prayers, and that the prayer which pleases us least often pleases God most. Suffer me then as a companion in the Christian warfare, to offer you a few words of exhortation. One thing at least we all feel. We must pray. We cannot give it up. We must go on
2: your attention the importance of reverence and humility in prayer. Let us never forget what we are and what a a solemn thing it is to speak with God. Let us beware of rushing into His presence with carelessness and levity. Let us say to ourselves, I am on holy ground. This is no other than the gate of heaven. If I do not mean what I say, I am trifling with God. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Let us keep in mind the world's The words of Solomon, be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thy heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven, and thou on earth. When Abraham spoke to God, he said he was, but dust and ashes. When Job spoke to God, he said, I am vile, let us do likewise.
0: All right, thank you so much for reading that, Michelle. Um, It's quite the introduction to the ninth chapter of this work. My question for us to discuss, and I've actually been thinking about this a lot today as as I was preparing to, to have this study this evening, the question that I want us to consider is, how do Ryle's opening remarks indicate the importance of humility in the Christian life, especially in view of us drawing near to God in prayer? So how does this opening three paragraphs that we just read show us the importance of humility in our Christian life, and especially humility when going before God in prayer. What do you guys think about that in light of what we just read together?
3: Humility because you don't want to forget where you came
0: from. Hmm. Yeah, very good. Recognizing um, our own sinfulness, our own inadequacy, which which Ryle goes um, into great lengths describing, um, especially there in that second paragraph, talking about um, how acquainted we are with, um, for lack of a better term, our babbling uh, in prayer, our, our, our sinful thoughts that we can bring uh, in prayer and, and have as a Christian. Those are definitely things that um, we as believers need to be mindful of, that we're, we're sinners and that we... Um, before salvation, we were at war with God. We were children of wrath, and, and we have nothing to gain, or I should say we have nothing to merit or earn in the sight of God in and of ourselves. So I think that's a great observation, Joanna. Any other thoughts? And you guys can just, I mean, you can share a thought, quote, that stood out to you, whatever. Um just thinking about this idea of humility, in the Christian life, and humility when we draw near to God in prayer.
1: I know I don't honor this. Sure. Like should. He says that. Let us say to ourselves, I am on holy ground. Mm. This is no other than the gate of heaven. If I do not mean what I say, I'm trifling with God.
0: Amen. How many of you guys sometimes when you're in prayer the words are coming out but your mind's elsewhere you know you're just kind of doing it cuz like well i'm a christian i guess i should pray today but really i'm just overwhelmed with what's going on at work or at school or with my my husband or wife or friend or church you know you know you can be praying about the church you're praying for the church but you're you're really just you're just talking into the air and your mind's not engaging with god it's it's just thinking about the church. You know, you can be praying, for, praying, right? And in, in, uh, quotation marks, you can be praying for something good and yet not really be praying about that. That That is really um, convicting to think about. Because sometimes when I pray, I find that I'm saying the words, but I'm not thinking about who I'm praying to. I'm thinking about more so what I'm praying about. And um, Ryle says that's akin to trifling with God. And that's, it's a dangerous place to be. Praise God for His grace, right? Praise God for His grace and His mercy to us. Um, any other thoughts? Oh, on that note, real quick, before somebody steals the idea I was, I was wanting to talk about here. Um, and I understand what Christians mean when they say this, but I'm sure y'all all have heard this before. How many of y'all have heard, prayer is just talking to God? Y'all have heard that quote, right? And there's truth to that. It, it is. Prayer, final analysis, for. Talking to God, expressing your thoughts and your desires and your requests to God. But there's still something a little bit different about talking to God, praying to God, than, say, talking to even your spouse or your children or your friends or your co workers or whoever. Um, and the reason why there's a difference there, as Ryle says, when you're praying, you're on holy ground. It it's like coming into the gates of heaven itself. It's like going into the Holy of Holies during the Old Testament times. You are going in the presence of the sovereign, holy, most high creator and sustainer of all things. There's something weighty, there's something different about going and talking to him versus saying, Oh, I'm just gonna go talk to my wife or my buddy. You know, I talked to my buddy about how the football game's going. There's there should be a different mindset when I talk to God in prayer than when I talk to my friend about football or my wife about clothing or, you know, my, my uh, pastor about administration stuff in the church or what have you. There's there's something different, unique, special, reverent when you go to speak with God in prayer. But any other thoughts? I, I had four um, thoughts on Ryle's opening remarks about the importance of humility in the Christian life and humility when going before God in prayer. But if any of you guys have any thoughts on this theme before I share those, I'd, I'd love to hear it. All right, well, I'll share my four four thoughts here. Um, number one, and I actually, in my notes here, I've underlined each section that I think corresponds to these, um, these thoughts that I have. So I'm going to share the, the quote and then I'll, I'll share the idea and then I'll share the quote that corresponds to it. So number one, a first thought. There are types of prayer that are pleasing to God and there are also types of prayer that are not pleasing to God. Look at this final two sentences in the very first paragraph we read. Ryle writes that the incense offered in the tabernacle was ordered to be made in a particular way. Not every kind of incense would do. Let us remember this and be careful about the matter and manner of our prayers. A prayer that's offered flippantly, selfishly, irreverently, it's not pleasing to God. Now, if you're in Christ, obviously, there's not a sin that you can commit that's going to cause you to lose your salvation or cause you to lose God's favor. You're His adopted child. But this still doesn't mean that everything you do is in and of itself glorifying to God, or in line with his commands of how he would have us to act, whether it be our lifestyle or our prayers. So um, just as there is a specific type of offering in the Old Testament, as Ryle notes, that was pleasing to God, so also there's a specific type of prayer. There's a specific specific attitude of prayer. There are specific petitions that we make in prayer that are pleasing to God, and and then there's some that are not pleasing to the Lord. Um, My second thought Um, prayer done properly demonstrates our innate inadequacy and our continual need for sanctification. And I put as a footnote to that thought, uh, we shouldn't leave times of prayer thinking highly of ourselves. Um, We we shouldn't leave a, a time of prayer thinking, man, you know, I really, I killed that prayer, or that sounded really good, or man, I'm really figuring this Christian life out. I'm doing pretty good for myself. No, like when you come before the throne of grace, you should have a greater awareness of your own inadequacy and your need for God, your need for his grace and mercy in every point of your life. And listen to what Ryle says on that theme. He cites two passages, one from the book of Romans and one from Psalm 119. But he notes second paragraph, first few sentences. He says, brethren who pray, if I know anything of a Christian's heart, you are often sick of your own prayers. You never enter into the apostles' words, When I would do good, evil is present with me so thoroughly as you sometimes do upon your knees, Romans 7.21. You can understand David's words, I hate vain thoughts, Psalm one nineteen one thirteen. And you can sympathize with that poor converted hottentot, um, which, if you see the footnote at the bottom of the page, a hottentot, according to Ryle, is a tribal name first recorded in the late 17th century and applied to the Koikhoi peoples of South Africa and Nambia. So, African group of people. But he says that poor converted African sinner, he was overheard praying this when he got converted. Lord, deliver me from all my enemies and above all from that bad man myself. So, I think what Ryle's getting at here, at least for me, my observation is if we're praying right, if we're praying prayers that are honoring to God, if, if we're truly engaging with the Lord in prayer, we're going to be more awakened to our need for him and our inadequacy in and of ourselves. As Joanna said, we're going to be more reminded of who we are and where we came from and, and not necessarily striving to exalt ourselves um, in any respect. That's what will happen if we're doing prayer. Right. Number three, third observation I made towards the end of the second paragraph is that prayer and humility should go hand in hand. Those who are growing in their prayer life are those who will grow in humility, and those who are growing in humility, true humility, Christian humility, they're those who are growing in their prayer life. It's two sides of the same coin. Ryle notes, he says, I believe that prayers which cost us no trouble... Should be regarded with great suspicion, I believe we are very poor judges of the goodness of our prayers, and that prayer which pleases us least often pleases God most. Uh, Martin Lloyd Jones once said that there 's never a time when he leaves the pulpit that he doesn 't feel like his sermon um, was very good he always He always felt like there was something more he could have said. He always left the pulpit thinking <sighs> You know, that just just really wasn't wasn't very good. It could have been so much better. There was so much more I could have said. And that's coming from arguably the greatest preacher of the past 200 years or so. He would leave the pulpit feeling, man, there's a lot more uh, that I could have said. I could have said it a lot better. And then thousands of people in his congregation and around the world would come up to him and say, Martin Lloyd-Jones, that was a tremendous sermon. Man, you really blessed me today. You magnified God. And to, to use that illustration for what Ryle's saying here, I think it's it's the same principle. Those who God uses most in ministry typically are those who view themselves as inadequate and as nothing special, nothing to be made um, famous about or to be magnified over. It's the same in our prayer life. If God's going to use our prayers We've got to be those who recognize, listen, I'm I'm just a sinner. I'm nothing. God's the one that's got to use my prayers to accomplish anything. Prayer and humility go hand in hand. Number four, um, any expression of prayer that is devoid of reverence is not pleasing to God. Christians must always remember who they are praying to. And that's the entire third paragraph. I'm not going to reread the whole thing because it's literally a full paragraph. But he cites Abraham, he cites Solomon, and he cites Job. And in each of those instances, they saw themselves in light of who they were praying to. And they recognized, I am but dust. I need to exalt this deity that I'm coming before. And I need to I need to de-emphasize myself. I need to bring myself low. I need to humble myself. Um, that's why I made that comment earlier briefly. You know, prayer, it is talking to God, but it's, it's certainly far more than that. Um, if we pray without any reverence of who we're talking to, we're not honoring God. We're not truly praying as He would have us to. And I think that's what Ryle is showing us from the Scripture there in that third paragraph. But were there any questions or thoughts or anything on that before we... Before we move on in this section, I know it's a lot to chew on, but it's rich. Will you repeat your last
2: point? That you yeah. Just
0: read? Any expression of prayer that is devoid of reverence is not pleasing to God. Christians must always remember who they are praying to. So, um, to use another Every, when we're talking about God, every example or illustration is overly simplistic, but I'm going to use it because it's the best I've got. If you were to talk to the President of the United States or the Queen of England or whoever, you would show a level of reverence and respect to them, right? They're, they're dignitaries. They're in positions of authority. Well, if we're going to do that towards earthly authorities who are sinners, how much more so should we show reverence and respect and awe over the god who is holy who's sovereign who's king and lord over all he's the ultimate authority obviously we we know we should show as much as we can um, out of a desire to honor god and out of a desire to um, have right views of him well let's move on now if there's no other thoughts or questions um there is one last paragraph under the subheading position. Um, it starts on page 19 and continues on to page 20. Would somebody be willing to read that paragraph?
3: I can read it. Thanks, Joanna. I commend to you the importance of praying spiritually. I mean by that that we should labor always to have the direct help of the Spirit in our prayers. And beware above all things of formality. Mm. There is nothing so spiritual but that it may become a form, and this is especially true of private prayer. We may insensibly get into the habit of using the fittest possible words and offering the most scriptural petitions, and yet do it all by rote without feeling it. Mm. And walk daily around, and walk daily round an old beaten path. I desire to touch this point. With caution and delicacy, I know that there are certain things we daily want, and that there is nothing necessarily formal in asking for these things in the same words. The world, the devil, and our hearts are daily the same. Of necessity, we must daily go over old ground. But this I say, we must be very careful on this point. If the skeleton and outline of our prayers be by habit almost a form, let us strive that the clothing and filling up of our prayers right that's the right second line mm-hmm. up of our prayers be as far as possible of the Spirit. As to praying out of a book in our private devotions, it is a habit we cannot praise that I cannot praise. If we tell if we can tell our doctors the state of our bodies without a book, we ought to be able to tell the state of our souls to God. I have no objection to a man using crutches when he is first recovering from a broken limb. It is better to use crutches than to not walk at all. But if I saw him all his life on crutches, I should not think it matter from congratulation. I should like to see him strong enough to throw his crutches away.
0: Very good. I mean I don't think Ryle would be too welcome in a lot of churches these days, would he? I mean he just gets right to the point. Uh very, very uh, grateful for that because that is a lost art in our day. But um I want us to pause here. There there's a lot we could say about that paragraph. Um, but really one thing stood out to me because um there there's a trend in our day now, and it's a good trend by and large, but it's a trend nonetheless. It's this idea of of praying the Bible. Um Donald Whitney, I think the young adults did a study, um, was it last year? Y'all went through his praying the Bible um, or spiritual disciplines or something that focuses on one of those things. Um, and, I, I've, I've, yeah, I'm, and I'm familiar with it myself. Um, and also Valley of Vision, I think we're all familiar with the Valley of Vision, Puritan prayers that, that people read devotionally and um, historically Christians have from time to time written out prayers and and use those for, you know, their own uh, devotionals and, and for their own encouragement with other believers. So in light of that, um, to preface this question, I want us to talk a little bit about this because I think it's going to lead to a fascinating discussion from some of you guys who who are familiar with these practices. What are your thoughts on Ryle's commentary about not praying out of books How do we square these remarks with people who are proponents of praying the Psalms or praying scripture or reading out of books such as the Valley of Vision? What are some practical ways to protect ourselves from rote prayer? So we'll just start with the first part of that multi-part question. What do you think about Ryle saying that he cannot praise the habit of praying out of a book in our private devotionals? Agree, disagree, or why? And why, I should say. Agree or disagree, and why? Do you think it's wrong to use the Valley of Vision or to pray Scripture to the Lord? Um, Or do you think that that's even what Ryle's saying, per se? I
2: do not think it's wrong to pray out of a book. But if you start, if that's all your prayer life is, then maybe so, yes. Mm.
0: You stole my answer. (laughs) Yep, that's that's where I land, Brittany. Um, I think that those are some really good resources. I think those resources can teach us how to pray. Because a lot of the Psalms were prayers. And we see how godly people prayed throughout biblical history. And then in something like the Valley of Vision, we see how Christians have prayed throughout church history. But... um, if that's all you do, and you never, as he says, like if you were to go to a doctor and you're going to explain how you feel physically, we should be able to go to the Lord in prayer and explain what we're going through spiritually. So if we're not doing the latter, are we really praying or are we just doing what he calls rope prayer? We're we just going through the motions on a regular basis. That's definitely something we need to be aware of. Any other thoughts on that? Um, Valley of Vision. Um, Praying the Psalms, praying Scripture, or did Brittany steal our thunder? It's all good. I, I thought that would be probably where you guys landed. Um, but here's, the, here's really the one that I wanted us to, to focus on. Let's get to the so what. How do we avoid rote prayer? Does everybody understand what he means by rote prayer? R-O-T-E, prayer means mindless prayer just going through the motions kind of like in the roman catholic church hey say 50 hail marys and 25 our fathers and you know then you're good to go you, you did your little um act of spirituality and and you'll be forgiven of this sin that you've confessed to the priest that would be an example of real prayer um how do you think we protect ourselves from that what do you think are some habits we can form? Some practices we can model?
3: I guess you could make it a point to whenever you start realizing that you're repeating yourself over and over again to stop and try to figure out a different way to say
0: No, that's that's yeah. good. No, that's really good. Okay. Yeah, because um, I'll make I'll, I'll make another uh, Hopefully, decent uh, analogy. It's, it's it's involving preaching. I uh, heard it from Steve Lawson. Uh, I think Alan actually told me this story, so hopefully, I get it right. But um, apparently, Steve Lawson was having dinner with R.C. Sproul one time, and they were talking about something, and then Sproul stops him right in the middle of a sentence and says, I want you to give me five adjectives for the word that you just used. And Lawson kind of fumbled through, you know, figured out some adjectives to say, and and Sproul's point was, in preaching and communication, you want to be able to find a way to communicate more or less the same truth in different ways so you can hit different people in the congregation. In other words, you don't just want to use the same phraseology over and over and over again. You want to help mix it up. It helps engage your mind better. It helps engage your audience's mind more effectively. Well, in a, in a similar way, in prayer if we're just saying the same things over and over and over again, are we really engaging our minds very well? Are we really dealing with what's in our heart? Probably not as well as if we were really thinking through what we're saying and we try to mix it up a little bit, use different adjectives, use different word choice, use um, different word order, things of that nature. Because remember, God already knows what we need before we even ask for it in prayer. So prayer, and, and it's been well said, prayer doesn't change God, it changes us. So if we're thinking through how we can word prayer requests differently and how we can be more um, effective in our communication of what's in our mind and what's on our hearts to God, that's going to have a probably a more significant impact on us. The prayer experience will be a lot more um, fulfilling, satisfying, and so on. I think that's great. That was actually one of my um, practical steps that we could take to avoid rope prayer. Um, any other thoughts? I had three that I came up with, but... That's one of the three, so now I only have two. Let's guess the other two. Yeah, go for it. Mm-hmm. Talking about how do we avoid mindless, repeated prayer? Rote prayer. What about praying out loud? See, I'm not saying you have to pray out loud. But what I am saying is, for me, I find that when I talk out loud, I can gauge, more or less, how does it sound? Um, what's my tone? Am I being reverent? Am I being mindless? Am I just going through the motions? Um, and it just my personality, it's more real for me when I, when I verbalize it. In my mind, my mind, if I'm praying in my mind, I find that I'm more scattered in what I'm trying to say, at least in the way that it sounds in my mind. It sounds like I'm monotone or just kind of just going through the motions, if you will. And it doesn't feel as real. Like, it just feels like I'm just talking to myself. When I know I'm not, I'm praying to the Lord. And sometimes you have to pray silently because you're in a public place or just not in a context where you can talk out loud. But when I'm by myself, or when it's just Belle and I, I like to pray out loud because it helps me to, in a very real way, feel like I'm really engaging with God. And um, again, not to say that there's anything magical about praying out loud. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I try to think... And, Jesus could be sitting right there in that chair next to me and I'm going to talk to him verbally. So I'm going to have the same mindset when I pray to the Lord, talking to the Lord reverently, um, expectantly, um, but I'm doing so in a way that's hopefully making sense and hopefully um, is more effective with what I'm trying to accomplish during my prayer time. And then the third thing that I came up with, and there's certainly more, I'm sure, but uh, a helpful Were you going to say something? Okay, Uh, A helpful, practical step to protect against rote prayer. Um, I wrote, pray multiple times a day as needs arise. Don't reduce your prayer life on a daily basis to a fixed routine. So I'm a big proponent of having a time every day where you go before the Lord in prayer. And and, and that's kind of your lengthy time. But really try, at least again, thinking practically here, how do I guard against being repetitive and, and mindless in my prayer. What I like to do, and I've really tried to do this since I got into pastoral ministry, but all I like to do is when a need arises, pray right then and there. Pray for that specific need in the moment. And let the, the Spirit who has made you aware of that situation in that moment, let the Spirit guide you in what it is to say right then and there. and And you'll find yourself giving more organic it's, it's not something forced or, or scripted or anything like that. Um, it's, it's 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 a response. Like if you're going through your day to day life and a situation happens, you respond to that situation in in the in the here and now, right? In real time, you're, you're making a response or you're you're talking in response to somebody asking you a question or so on. Same thing with your prayer life. I think if something comes up and it's an opportunity for me to pray, then. I can respond to that request and trust that God's going to enable me to respond in a way that's appropriate and to pray in a way that's fitting for whatever need has been uh, whatever need has been made known to me at that time. So, I'm all for private, extended periods of prayer, but I, I think that at least for me personally, praying as needs come up help. Like today, you know, we mentioned earlier Jay and um, the ER not doing well. Right then and there, pray for Jay, you know, and, and, and do it. Might not know all the details, might not know um, even what, what am I even going to say before you start praying. Man, just get started and watch how the Spirit guides you. It's fascinating to see the work of the Holy Spirit in leading God's children into how they should pray, right? That, that passage in Romans, how the Spirit will, will teach us to pray. As We, uh, we, we might not know how, what to pray or how to pray, but the Spirit will guide us, He'll teach us, lead us in prayer. Um, I, f- I find that happening uh, quite often when I when I take the initiative to pray as needs arise. So,
2: and also taking it maybe a step further, whenever you feel comfortable to, like when a friend is in need, pray with them even over the phone. It doesn't have to be in person. It doesn't have to be um, some formal thing. Over oh, the phone is just as absolutely lovely.
0: Amen. No, I love that. Um,
2: <clears throat>
0: praise God for the gift of technology. Right. I mean, it's just as real. I love that. Any other thoughts before we move on? All right. Well, uh, practice. Page 20, going into the very top of page 21, we are going to read this section here. I'm going to read that first paragraph, and then I need two volunteers to read the following two paragraphs under this subheading. So who would like to take the second one? Alan will take it. And then the third. Page 20, top of page 21. I
1: can
0: read, I can read another one. Okay. All right, I'll read the first paragraph. I commend to you the importance of making prayer a regular business of life. I might say something of the value of regular times in the day for prayer. God is a God of order. The hours for morning and evening sacrifice in the Jewish temple were not fixed as they were without a meaning. Disorder is eminently one of the fruits of sin, but I would not bring any under bondage. This only I say, that it is essential to your soul's health to make praying a part of the business of every 24 hours in your life. Just as you allot time to eating, sleeping, and business, so also allot time to prayer. Choose your own hours and seasons. At the very least, speak with God in the morning before you speak with the world, and speak with God at night after you have done with the world. But settle it in your minds that prayer is one of the great things of every day. Do not drive it into a corner. Do not give it the scraps and pairings of your duty. Whatever else you make a business of, make a business of prayer.
1: I commend to you the importance of perseverance in prayer. Once having begun the habit, never give it up. Your heart will sometimes say you have had had family prayers. What mighty harm if you leave private prayer undone? Your body will sometimes say you are unwell or sleepy or weary. You need not pray. Your mind will sometimes say you have important business to attend to today. Cut short your prayers. Hmm. Look on all such suggestions as coming direct from Satan. They are all as good as saying neglect your soul. I do not maintain that prayer should always be of the same length, but I do say let no excuse make you give up prayer. Mm.
3: Paul said, continue in prayer and pray without ceasing. He did not mean that men should always be on their knees, but he did mean that our prayer should be. Like the continual burnt offering, steadily persevered in every day. That it should be like seed time and harvest and summer and winter, unceasingly coming round at regular seasons. That it should be like the fire on the altar, not always consuming sacrifices but never completely going out. Never forget that you may tie together morning and evening devotions by an endless chain of short ejaculatory prayers throughout the day. Even in company, business, or in the... or in the very streets. You may be silently sending up little-winged messengers to God, as Nehemiah did in the very presence of Artaxerxes. And never think that time is wasted which is given to God. A nation does not become poorer because it loses one year of working days and seven by keeping the Sabbath. A Christian never finds he is a loser in the long run by persevering in prayer. Amen. All
0: right, guys, so this is where the rubber meets the road. And I think you guys will know the answer to this question because we've talked about similar um, questions in the past, even within this curriculum that we've been working through over the past several weeks. But I'm going to give it to you nonetheless to see if if we're uh, paying attention in those conversations and to see where our discussion may go. But my question is this. Is it possible to be a spiritually mature Christian without a regular, vibrant and heartfelt prayer life? Why or why not?
3: A heartfelt Christian?
0: Is it possible to be a spiritually mature Christian? Mature, and you're thinking, okay. so can can somebody be spiritually mature but lack a regular prayer life which is vibrant and heartfelt? So not Again, many Roman Catholics and other religions, they pray every day, right? They go through rituals, they go through um, really rigorous, um, mystical-type actions or experiences where they think they're praying to God, but their prayer is really not being prayed um, from a a heart that knows God and loves God. So I'm I'm asking for somebody who is, is truly engaging in prayer, is it possible for somebody to be a spiritually mature Christian but never um, engage in that? Engage in that heartfelt, um, vibrant, regular discipline of prayer. So, um, If I could say the question a different way, does the spiritual maturity in regular, heartfelt prayer go hand in hand?
3: Yes, and no, you can't be spiritually mature without it. Very good. Be more lukewarm. half
0: in, half out. Yeah, yeah. Talk about that a little bit. That's the that's that's the right answer. It's biblical, and um, you guys, I think, hit the nail right on the head. It goes hand in hand, right? Spiritual maturity and um, and uh, regular prayer life from the heart. But why do you think that's the case? Because I mean, think about it. Right? A lot of people. Um, well, let me say it like this: What if somebody knows a lot about the Bible? They're great preachers. They're great teachers. Um, they went to seminary. They may have a PhD or a doctorate of some sort. They can answer any question you could ask about Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, church history, systematic theology, whatever. They know they got all this knowledge. They're a walking encyclopedia. But. Their life's not characterized by true, heartfelt, and regular prayer. Is that person spiritually mature, even though they have a bunch of knowledge? No. Why do you think so?
3: Well, you can know a lot of things. I mean, there's knowledge in books. That doesn't mean that books are Christians. Mm -hmm. Which, that sounds smart, Like I'm not trying to be, but it makes me think of some people that we know... And you know you can know a lot, like you said, you can know Hebrew and you can read Greek and you do can do all of that stuff. But it's the spirit that makes you alive, not yourself, Amen. not the knowledge. Amen. So without that, no, you can't be you can't be a Christian at all.
0: Sure, I completely agree. Well, any other thoughts on that note? Because some of the smartest unbelieving Bible scholars in the world. Um, are not spiritually mature at all. They're not even Christians. I think of a guy like Bart Ehrman, um, one of the top New Testament scholars of our day, uh, one of the top Greek um, exegetes and and, and teachers that you're going to find anywhere in the world. Um, He can tell you anything about the New Testament, anything. But he openly um, rejects the existence of God. He doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah um, thinks he was just a normal man that died and that his body got stolen or somehow or another the, the body got lost but he didn't really um, rise from the dead he's not spiritually mature but he's got a ton of knowledge he's a lot smarter than I am um, so, yeah, so, so, so knowledge knowledge is not the mark of spiritual maturity giftedness is not the mark of spiritual maturity. Spiritual, spiritual maturity is marked by obedience to the commands of Scripture and in light of obedience to the commands of Scripture. It's a lifestyle pattern of heartfelt prayer to the Lord. It's desiring to, to know God and be with God and to tell others about Him, to encourage others to draw near to God and to um, deepen their relationship with God. Um, I made some comments here that I I want to share with you and for the, for the listener's benefit as well. I think it would be thought-provoking for everybody to consider. Um, I want us to think about this, and, and y'all feel free to jump in and comment as you feel led to do so, but it's possible to have self-identified as a Christian for over 50 years. You've been baptized. You've made a profession of faith in Christ. You may be in a significant position in the local church give a ton of money to the local church. You've done all the right things for over 50 years. But yet, you can be less spiritually mature than a person who's only been a believer for, say, three years. You see, my friends, a lack of prayer will ultimately lead to self-sufficiency, pride, and an unwillingness to submit to God's word from the heart. Think about this. If one won't submit their minds, will, and heart to God in prayer, why would we expect them to do so to God's written word, which in itself, the Bible, instructs us to regularly go before the Lord in prayer? If somebody isn't willing to go to the Lord in prayer, thereby submitting themselves to their utter need for God, Why would we expect them to even care truly about what the Word of God says? They might know it intellectually, but they're not going to obey it from the heart. They're not going to desire to to conform their lives to what it actually teaches. It just becomes an ancient textbook at that point. It becomes an intellectual game. We think of the text from James 2, the demons believe and shudder, right? The demons have terrific theology. They don't love God. It's just intellectual. And then I have to throw this in. Because I think this is relevant to just about, sadly, just about every church in America these days. There's some that are exceptions, but I believe this is true for over 90-95% to of churches in America. Just as a church's weekly prayer meeting will show you the true heart of a church, so also a self-identifying Christian's prayer life will show you their true heart. You want to see the heart of a church? Go to the prayer meeting. You want to see the heart of somebody truly look at their prayer life. And that's the reality that we all have to, to deal with. I have to deal with. In fact, as soon as we get done here tonight, I'm going to drive to the gym and, and fall on my face before the Lord because I want to know him. I want to be with him. I want to I want to spend time with him. I want to I want it to be said of me. What Ryle has been describing, I pray that your heart as well for the glory of God, for the good of your soul, that you would know the living God and that being with him would be your greatest priority and desire in this life. That's what I want to come out of this study for you and for me. Um, any other thoughts or questions on any of that any of that, um, that we just read here from Ryle or discussed here as a group before we move on?
4: Uh, I, I like to want to say God is a God of order. I, remember, uh, I have a friend and whose uh, grandfather believes that the it's part of the first paragraph. And, yeah, yeah. Um, that they believe that uh, Acts in the Bible is not finished because it doesn't say amen. And one day me and Joanne were talking, she's like, Lord, God's not the God of confusion. And then maybe you already said it, but the way I'm thinking of my brain, you know, like you said, people might know the Bible in and out. They might know PhDs, but that doesn't mean they actually know what it's saying. That's but right. If you truly understand what it's saying, the truth of it, then it'll change you. But yeah. You could. I could read it and now understand it. And I think uh, I was talking to Mr. Taylor today, like you know, um, I think it, I was talking. This came out. I can't remember, but. Um, yeah, yeah I no, I'm sorry uh, either way uh, I could um, I, I always uh, it always hits me how people always say the Bible is not clear like you know it's confusing mm-hmm. but I'm like you read it and I can understand it Yeah. And I'm like when I was young I couldn't understand it until God opened my eyes and, and now when I read it I can see everything from the beginning mm-hmm. like the sovereignty of God I for a long time I didn't believe it but after God opened my eyes about it you can see it everywhere in scripture so, mm-hmm. just
0: yeah like and just to your point um, and for the listener and us to hear tonight um, as uh, and wanting to respond to what you just said at face value the Bible is very simple to understand very straightforward Um, that's the doctrine of the perspicuity of scripture that that the central basic teachings of Christianity as revealed in the Bible are easy to understand a a kid can understand them the problem is spiritually they're foolishness to the natural man so for somebody who's not born again oh they see it just fine what's in it they they can read the, the text and they can even they can even intellectually learn facts about the Bible that's going to be foolishness to them spiritually. They're not going to want to submit to it. They're, they're going to want to live their own lives the way they want to live it. They want to keep the Bible at arm's length, right? Um, that's why it always baffles me when people say, you know, the Bible just, is just so confusing. It's, it's just kind of like all these riddles, mysteries, and it's like, have you actually ever opened it up and read it? Because I can go show you a lot of unbelievers who, who really have deep intellectual knowledge of it. I mean, it's really easy to understand the Bible. Anybody can do it. But the problem is, spiritually, it's foolishness. Of course I understand what it says, but why would I want to allow my life to be impacted by what it says? Why would I care about this ancient book telling me how I need to live my life? You think God's that narrow? I mean, yeah, it's a great ancient document and everything. It's a fascinating study, but... I'm not going to actually allow it to dictate the way I live my life. That's that's craziness. That's the mindset that a lot of people operate from. And sadly a lot of people in the church operate that way as well. Yeah, of course we know what the Bible says about X Y and Z doctrine, but uh yeah, but you know, it's kind of uncomfortable. I think we're just going to go a different route. We we can just choose not to surrender to this part of the Bible that 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 kind of challenges us a little bit. So and that's a, that's a mark of spiritual immaturity. Um, we would expect that from unbelievers, but uh, unfortunately, many believers, uh, or at least self identifying believers, seem to embrace that, that mindset. But, anyways, we'll move on now. Um, rest of page 21 and the very top of page 22 to draw our lesson to a conclusion tonight. Um, If I can get two volunteers to read those two paragraphs on page 21, and I'll read the final one going into page 22. So, two uh, volunteers. Michelle, you can take the first one. Can I get a volunteer for the second, bottom of page, or near the bottom of page 21? Anyone want to take that?
2: Which
0: one? Uh, The second to last paragraph on page 21. Uh, It starts with I commend.
4: You want to take that one? Just that
0: one? Yeah, just, just that one. one. And I'll take the we should on page 22.
4: Okay.
0: All right. Go for it, Michelle.
2: Let us try to amend this fault. Let us knock loudly at the door of grace like mercy in the pilgrim's progress. As if we must perish unless hurt. Let us settle it in our minds that cold prayers are a sacrifice without fire. Let us remember the story of...
0: The most things, things, we'll go with that. (laughs) (laughs) The
2: cold prayers are a sacrifice. Sorry, the great orator. When one came to him and wanted him to plead his cause, he heard him without attention while he told his story without earnestness. The man saw this and and cried out with anxiety that it was all true. Ah, said tremendous
4: i believe you know i commend to you the importance of praying with faith we should endeavor to, be, endeavor to believe that our prayers are heard and that if we ask these according to god's will we shall be answered this is the plain command of our lord jesus christ what oh, what uh, whatsoever Things ye desire when ye pray believe that ye receive the them and ye shall have them faith is to prayer what the feather is to arrow without it, prayer will not hit the no
0: mark we should cultivate the habit of pleading promises in our prayers we should take with us some promise and say lord here is thine own word pledged do for us as thou hast said this was the habit of jacob moses and david the 119th Psalm is full of things asked according to thy word. Above all, we should cultivate the habit of expecting answers to our prayers. We should do like the merchant who sends his ships to sea. We should not be satisfied unless we see some return. Alas, there are few points on which Christians come short so much as this. The church at Jerusalem made prayer without ceasing for Peter in prison, but when the prayer was answered, They would hardly believe it, Acts 12, 15. It is a solemn saying of trail. There is no surer mark of trifling in prayer than when men are careless what they get by prayer. And with that, we uh, conclude this portion of chapter 9 of Ryle's A Call to Prayer. We'll pick up where we left off during our next study to finish up this curriculum. But before we transition into our time of corporate prayer tonight, I, I do want us to read from this devotional, from Martin lloyd Jones's devotional booklet called Walking with God. I, I actually read this devotional yesterday. It's dated February 2nd. And um, I believe this devotional marvelously captures the essence of what Ryle is exhorting us to do in regard to the attitude that we should embrace for ourselves in prayer. Namely, that we need to be earnest in prayer. We need to pray with faith. We need to cultivate the habit of pleading promises And we need to pray expectantly. And I think in this devotional that we're going to read together as we close, Lloyd-Jones hits on each of those points. It's it's a great way to conclude the study that we've just had and to um, punctuate everything that Ryle has said by way of conclusion in this section of chapter 9. You'll notice that the central thought of this devotional by Lloyd-Jones is summarized in this way. It's at the very bottom of the devotional page that I handed out to you guys before we started. It says, A thought to ponder. Please and arguments and requests are perfectly legitimate in prayer. Please and arguments and requests are perfectly legitimate in prayer. And I think that's what Ryle is getting at right there in that final um, three paragraphs that we read together. Uh, the attitude we should have in prayer. How should we think about prayer, what attitude, what posture, what disposition should we have in going before the Lord in prayer. Um, let me read this devotional just to put a conclusion on everything we've considered together tonight, and then we'll we'll uh, transition into our time of prayer requests uh, before we, we bring our time together tonight to a conclusion. The uh, title of this devotional is, What is Legitimate in Prayer? And Psalm 7410 is the Passage of focus right at the top. Oh God, how long shall the adversary reproach? And here's what uh, Lloyd-Jones writes in this devotional. He says, Pleas and arguments and requests are perfectly legitimate in prayer. Have you noticed how men of God prayed? They knew God was omniscient, so they not only made their requests known to Him, but also pleaded with Him. And what I like above everything else is the way they argued with Him. Moses, for example, did so. On one occasion he came down from the mountain found the people rebellious, and when he found God threatening to disown them and leave them to their own devices, Moses said to God, You cannot do this. Look too at the man in Psalm seventy four. O oh God, how long shall the adversary reproach? He says in effect, Lord, why do you allow men to do these things? I believe God his father delights in listening to such pleas and reasonings and arguments. This flabby generation of Christians seemed to have forgotten what our fathers used to delight in when they talked about pleading the promises. They did not regard that as offensive. They had no sort of mock humility, but they felt they were entitled, according to this teaching, to go to God as the psalmist did and remind him of his own promises. They said, "'Lord, I do not understand. I know it is my imperfection, but I am certain of these promises.'" Lord, help me to see how the promises are to be related to these perplexities. So it is perfectly right to plead with God. Our Lord pleaded with him. In his great prayer in John 17, our Lord argued with God by bringing his requests. He reminded God of his own promises and of his own character. I believe God delights in this his Father. And as we do these things in this way, our hearts will be reassured before him. And often we shall be amazed and astonished at the answers that we receive. What a great encouragement for us to consider by way of concluding tonight's lesson. And to the listener, I do want to thank you for joining us for this portion of J.C. Riles' A Call to Prayer Study at FBC Edna. We hope that you will be richly blessed in your spiritual life and that you will draw near to the Lord in prayer as we close our time of study. May God bless you.